This podcast is part of the Game and Entertainment Network. Visit tgenetwork.net to find the latest episodes from all our shows. I don't know who you are, but you're listening to the Burton and Scrooge podcast. Podcasters without any particular skill. Don't say you weren't warned. Hello and welcome to the lavishly tooled and finely crafted Burton and Scrooge podcast. A moderately frequent show about gaming, movies, TV and popular culture. With your illustrious hosts, Brian Scrooge Esquire and the Right Honourable Roger Edwards. So sit down, pour yourself a glass of medium dry sherry and enjoy the latest musings of Burton and Scrooge. Purveyors of the finest quality podcasts throughout the civilized world. Hello and welcome to the Burton and Scrooge podcast, episode number 31. I'm Roger. And as ever, I'm joined by my co-host, Brian. Hello, everybody. Brian, do you ever get an odd feeling of deja vu? No. Me neither. Moving swiftly on. On this episode of Burton and Scrooge, we'll be taking a look at the, shall I say it? Yes, I'll dare to say it, the renaissance in Lotro. How the change of developers from Turbine to Standing Stone Games has um, given this 10-year-old MMO a major shot in the arm. We'll also be discussing that popular YouTuber PewDiePie and the predicament that he has got himself into. And we'll be looking at the wider issue of the commercialization of streaming and um, recorded content on YouTube. And finally, now that the season has been and gone and hopefully everyone's caught up with it, we're going to give our opinion on Sherlock Season 4. And I believe that you've got quite a lot to say about that, Brian. A little bit, yes. So, as ever, a packed show. So, without further ado... Let's dive right in. Most people, in fact pretty much everybody, bar the staff that actually work at Standing Stone Games, were completely wrong-footed by the announcement just before Christmas that the development team that existed within Turbine to produce DDO and Lotro were becoming their own independent gaming company taking over the license of both those titles and forging ahead on their own. It pretty much pulled the carpet out from most people, didn't it? Uh, Yeah, to say it was a surprise was uh, the understatement of that year, I think. Let's just, for the moment, set aside the involvement of the Daybreak Gaming Company, who are their publisher and possibly their financier. Let's just sideline that issue for a moment. I think most people, particularly the Lotro faithful, once they got their head round what had happened, 
suddenly thought to themselves, wow, this sounds like a, a positive thing and hopefully there'll be scope for great improvements within the game. And then within a matter of days, the development team started putting out posts on the official forum and tweets saying, hmm, we've got further updates and developments. There's an expansion in, in the offing and we're also looking at upgrading character models. And the result has been people are now returning to the game because both you and I, Brian, are now heavily back into Lotro. And also there's a lot of new players turning up on the various servers. I don't know about where you play, but on uh, Laurelin, there's quite a lot of action in the starter area. So this has had a very positive effect on a game that so many people, possibly even ourselves, had sidelined have to say it kind of feels good doesn't it? it it feels like we've turned back the clock what six years on that game or something yeah it, it, it really does and it, and it it you know you and I have always liked the game we I think we've been fairly critical of it over the years which is fine you know I think we're critical because we like it not because we hate it right if we hate it we wouldn't talk about it at all um but yeah I'm on Landerville now which is one of the bigger servers I would say and I think it's where all the stuff like Weatherstock happens and those types of events you know mm-hmm. and, and I had rolled I think I've talked in, in another podcast about I rolling a Guardian to possibly take to end game, a little project I'm working on and I'm in the, the starter area for the dwarves it, it's, a, it's a dwarf and I've never done that before I've never had a dwarf in the game and it was just tons of people like I've gone through that game for days and not seen another player literally not seen another player a year ago let's say or two years ago whenever I last played now I I was like running into people all the time complete change now naturally some of those new people are going to be long time players who've created alts but I think the giveaway that is there indicating that there are lots of new players in the game is you see lots of people running around in really really mismatched gear or asking questions that a lot of people might even roll their eyes at or even facepalm in chat but hey they're new players they don't know they're coming along they're enjoying their experience so you expect them to ask questions and that seems to be the big indicator i even heard a rumor that because there is not a great deal of english language european servers that the talk seems to be that the one that we're on is filling up very quickly Wow. That doesn't surprise me at all, though. Which raises a very interesting problem, doesn't it, for them? After server consolidations, there might even be the possibility of opening up new overspill servers. But you know, we'll cross that bridge when, when we come to it. But how have you found things since you returned to the game, Brian? Because you can find yourself in that situation sometimes where you've been away so long, you just forget totally how to play your characters. I, I struggled for the first maybe day, and I don't remember how many hours I played, you know, over the, well, the first two days, really, but it wasn't, it came back to me pretty quickly, not as quickly as, as Guild Wars 2 came back to me when I returned to it for one day after, like, a year, you know what I mean? But it, all I, what what had happened was, I logged into Lotro, and my, I have a Hunter, which is easy to play anyway, but it had been respect. All of the spec points were gone. <laughs> and that's what 
that's what caused me pause because I couldn't remember how I had it all set up. And it took me a while to kind of look through, oh, I've got these buttons on my bar, and so it must have been this type thing, if that makes sense. Once I got it set up, it was like, you know, you know, once you ride a bike, you, you don't forget. You know what I mean? It's, it's I, I just went out and I started very quickly being able to do it. But you, you play a more complicated class. You play the, uh, the lore master. How did you find that? Well, luckily, the lore master that I've been playing for the last seven years, I've been playing continuously. I don't tend to create multiple alts, so I'm never really out of the habit of playing it. I play Lotro for a month every quarter, usually, and then I find that that month is enough for me to catch up with the latest update, do the things that I need to do, and then I stop playing. So returning to the game for me wasn't so much a question of relearning my skills, but what it did highlight to me was, apart from playing the epic story and a few regional quests, I had been neglecting other aspects of my character. Things like the slotted armor system I had avoided. I, I went out my way just to get armor from the auction hall that had stats on it already. And I was underpowered as a result. Simple fact is, if you want to improve your performance, one of the primary ways of doing that is embracing the new slotted armor system. So I decided to do that. And to cut a long story short, I looked around, couldn't do the regular daily instances that yield good quality gear because I just haven't got the time. So I decided to do this new flora barter system that's in Ithilien, where effectively you go round and you farm plants that are growing in the area and they yield extracts and you combine all these extracts and you get more potent extracts and then you trade those for gear. I blogged about that because I was worried that it was going to take me a huge amount of time. It is actually a lot quicker than what I anticipated and thanks to all the people that actually left comments on the website to correct me on that. It took me about a fortnight to get the full set of gear. I don't think that's too bad. No, that's not too bad at all. So I got the gear, then I started going through my essences, quickly discovered that unless it's teal or gold, don't touch it, it's just not worth it. So I didn't have a great deal of essences to put in my slotted gear. You know that gold that you earn now and it just builds up and you do nothing? Mm -hmm. I blew over 800 gold buying essences on the auction house. Wow. And instantly I suddenly see my stats increase by 10,000 here and 10,000 there. I also revisited my uh, virtues. If you can cast your mind back and remember when back in the day when virtues were important. I had set up my virtues according to what the meta was in 2010. It's totally different now. So I, I did some digging on the internet and I found a lore master's build that I thought was pertinent to my playstyle. So I just replicated it and instantly my tactical mastery went up. So this is one of the, these are the things that have been keeping me busy and, and I like this. These are the things that keep you excited. You, you, you pursue goals, you set yourself achievements and then you, you undertake them. And then when you sort it out, you suddenly see a tangible improvement. That is how I like to play my MMOs. I also am fortunate enough to be in a really great kin who have given me some really good gear to help just improve my build because they just play it 
continuously so they just have good loot coming out of their ears so yeah uh, I, mercifully returning to my lore master wasn't as much as an uphill struggle but I've certainly changed his build and have found the benefits of that immense you know what's funny is and you and I have talked about this and I think we even hopped into the game together to look at some some stats because I I'm underpowered almost compared to other hunters although I don't really care to compare myself but you have obviously pushed on to the end game and have fully embraced that and, and are participating in that, right? Yes. Whereas I have decided this time around that if I do that, I'm afraid I'm going to burn out. So I'm kind of lingering about three or four content or five even content patches behind, and I'm working on my, um, my imbued weapons and I'm just sort of slowly moving along, but I'm trying to to time it so that I don't go too fast, and and so it's it's going very very slow right now. But I'm still having fun because my weapons aren't maxed out, and, and as you said, having a goal in that game is, is maybe what drives me. And I'm just afraid, boy, I can go on the auction house and buy all the crap I need right away and have my weapon maxed out. But then what would I do? I might stop locking in is what I'm afraid. So so we, we're kind of doing it two different ways. You know, you, you're the one pushing forward and I'm sort of the one, I'm kind of holding myself back right now. Um, but that's good because I probably have, what, a month or two of content really ahead of me if once I decide to eventually go forward. But we've got, as you said, an expansion coming this summer and then I think we have a content drop here in the spring, it sounds like. Yes, Yes, indeed. Uptake 20 is coming, and um, that is going to be very, very interesting because not only is it a nice, neat round number 20, it also coincides with the 10th anniversary. So um, that gets us into Dagolad, outside of the gates of Mordor. We're actually at that iconic location, so that's going to be great. There's going to be plenty of content there. And then they're even saying that round about full time there's going to be an expansion. Yeah, <laughs> just it's. I once the shackles of Warner Brothers were taken off, don't you get the feeling that a lot of things that they have wanted to do are finally doable all of a sudden? For example, yeah. the housing hooks. Yes, indeed. Ha- haven't they? I mean, I, I'm not even making this up. Since the game started, which was ten years ago almost people have been asking for better housing and specifically for ways to better better places to hang things in the house or to set things up in the house because the hook placement wasn't great as you know in, in, in a lot of the homes and we were always told we can't do it you know it can't be done technical reasons blah blah whatever excuse in the game right now is adjustable housing hooks isn't it all of a sudden surprise it's doable <laughs> after Standing Stone Games was formed and stuff, and, and it happened right away, didn't it? <laughs> like, yeah. it didn't take them seven months to figure it out. It happened in a period of a couple weeks. We had housing hooks. And this change, this housing hook change, is such a sort of olive branch to offer the player base. It really is a sign of goodwill. Yeah, it's a seemingly minor thing, and I know it sounds silly, but it was a, for me it was huge. It was almost game-changing on the housing side because I had bought a premium house when I came back because I was all excited about being back and they had them and I had a bunch of Lotro points accumulated so I'm like what the hell so I bought one 
And then I regretted it because once I got into the house and looked at the hooks, I didn't at all like where some of them were placed. And I wasn't able to set it up. I know, silly problem, right? But you know what? You know, I paid fifty bucks or something for this house. I want to be happy with it. Now I am able to set it up exactly the way I want to. There, there doesn't seem to be that limit anymore, and I am completely one hundred percent satisfied with that purchase. So good on them and, and there's other things like that too like you, you mentioned the animations they're working on and, and uh, some of the other stuff so well you've got this discrepancy in the game anyway because you've got character models that were created at the inception of the game in 2007 and the NPCs in the early areas of the game reflect the design of the game at that time and then you look at more recent character models like those you see in Helm's Deep and in the the areas of Gondor they look a lot better, smoother, more polished so you've already got this sort of difference between NPCs and you just think to yourself no, the, the, the character models for, for our actual playable characters are long overdue so I'm looking forward to it however Again, Standing Stone Games being very, very mindful of what players are like. Some people are very attached to their avatars. And therefore, they're going to make sure that you can either opt into the new system or you can keep a classic look. And to me, that's just ideal. That's just keeping all parties concerned happy. Yes. The thing I am a little confused about is a new playable race, the High Elf. Can you see any pressing need for these, Brian? New playable race is always a nice thing, I think. Not so sure about that choice, but I don't know a lot about it. Do you have a tendency to play elves anyway? My main is an elf, yes. Because for me, the high elf is a little bit problematic lore-wise. And I can't really see an immediate point of them unless they're going to allow the high elf to play some of the classes that elves can't play at the moment like an elf captain well and maybe that's what they're going to do i just you know (laughs) at a base level and this is not looking at anything else we have elves in the game right and now we're going to have more elves in the game and there's already a lot of people play elves it just for me it's just like why bother I think I would have rather seen a new class than a new race, personally. But maybe there's some grand plan, and maybe this will open up some really cool things, and we just don't know the details yet. So I'm trying to... I'm skeptical, but I'm trying to be open-minded. I'm sure some of our more um, scholarly listeners will probably be able to inform us what are the benefits of High Elves being added to the game. And then we can, obviously, if we get such communications, we will put those out in the next show. But um, at the end of the day, it's something additional being added to the game. It will make some players happy. Obviously, I think it's going to be a question of if you want to play the High Elf, you'll have to pay for it the same way as if you wanted to play the Beyond in class. So it's going to be bringing revenue into the game. So that itself is a good thing because the revenue then keeps the development team in work and keeps the content flowing. How do you feel, Brian, about the fact that Standing Stone Games have pretty much said we're going to be at the end of the story soon 
and that the expansion and the updates that will come after the expansion are very much going to be focused on what happens after the fall of Sauron, after the rings being destroyed. Because obviously, for law reasons, we're not going to go bowling into Mordor to help Frodo out. That just cannot be sustained within the canon. That would just be illogical. So we're probably going to be outside with the host of the West as fighting the, the, the armies of Sauron when, when Baradur falls and the ring is destroyed. And then after that, it's a question of the storyline then opens up for the the developers to be far 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 more creative because yes you've got guidelines in the in the book's appendix but they're not fleshed out detailed like we know that after the fall of sauron some time was spent pacifying the rest of mordor and the territories further south and the fact that some order had to be restored also with regard to things like the Corsairs of Umbar. So do you have any particular hopes, aspirations, or particular interests in what happens? Absolutely zero, actually, which is good. Um, part of the thing about this game is that we know the story, and we've known the story all along, and so it's been very predictable, hasn't it, pretty much? I mean, they, they, yes. they've kind of gone off to some side areas that we weren't quite expecting along the way, I think, just to slow us down or something but for the most part we've always known since the very first time we've been in the game that you know the ring gets destroyed and all of these things happen and certain things have had to happen along the way and we know that we are going to either see them or be around them or feel the effects of them or what have you so I'm apprehensively looking forward to a time when I have no idea what's going to happen because in every other game I play, that is the case. I just don't know what they're going to do, and it's kind of fun, right? <laughs> in Lotro, you know, it's always been kind of a comfort. Oh, yeah, well, you know, we know we're going to be in Mordor, and we know that this happens, and, you know, we know this story. Everybody knows this story very well. It's movies and books and, and all of the uh, surrounding things. So, uh, you know, I, I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm kind of like, what are they going to do? And then I kind of don't want to know about it. I, I just want to, I think I want to experience it as it happens. But it is exciting that they seem to have a lot of plans for very far into the future. So it, it's something that, you know, unless something happens business-wise, it sounds like they're going to be carrying along for quite a long time. Well, I've got a lot of faith in the writing team that have worked on this game for the last seven, eight years. I think they've been very innovative in coming up with ways to work within the confines of the story. So, yeah, fill their boots as far as I'm concerned. Let them go ahead and be really creative when it comes to what happens post-story. There are all sorts of gaps on the map that I would love to see filled out. Things like going from Tharbad right the way up to the south farthing of the Shire. That, that there's scope there for that to be in, opened up. And I just want to, like you say, be in a situation where you can finally just log in because a new patch has come out and it's the, the story is completely up for grabs. It's just like, oh, we're going to do this, are we? Really? Oh, superb. Who's that? Oh, right, they're that, are they? And just immerse yourself in the indulgences of the writers, as yeah, it were. Yeah, and, you know, along those lines, one of our complaints about Lotro the entire time is that we're essentially supporting cast as players, aren't we? The, you know, yes. the, the, the 
the main characters of Lord of the Rings are the main characters in Lord of the Rings Online, and we always have had a supporting role to them, and we have complained because how many quests are there of picking up nails and delivering hay to somebody and and cleaning up the poop after the party? You know what I mean? It's 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 I, I just cleaned up dirty plates in Minas Tirith. That was an entire quest that I had to run around just like. You know, I, I've literally done all of these things. I, I even tweeted out about it. I've done all this crap as a character, and I'm cleaning up plates. That's that's what they've decided to have me do. So anyway, maybe going forward, they can shift the focus to us as heroes. And maybe we can be the main characters finally in this game after 10 years. And I'm kind of excited to see if they do that, and if so, and I'm hoping they do, how they do that, because I really don't want to be cleaning plates and picking up you know nails for the next five or ten years it, it's it's it, it got old a long time ago and, and I, I get why they've had to do it and that's fine I'll give them a pass on it but I think okay once once we're done with Mordor let's push on why don't we push on as heroes and, and do, do the fun stuff yeah it will be nice to say Tata to being Gandalf's little helper as it were now, you touched on something a little earlier. You mentioned imbuement of legendary items. Now, I think both of us, when this system was introduced in, I believe it was update 16, we went, ah, oh, cool. And we both jumped into it, possibly without fully researching what it involved. And I think both of us have been very much been playing catch up. And hopefully now we've got our heads around how it works and how you can continue to expand the abilities of your weapon and how it really does make a difference. What this has highlighted for me, Brian, is the lack of online resources for Lotro at the moment. There are quite a lot of fan blogs and websites which give gamers diaries and there are a few guides out there which I am very, very, very grateful for, but the Lotro wiki has large gaps in its knowledge and that there just aren't the sites with resources that there were five seven years ago and i'm hoping that maybe we will see a resurgence in this area because i can remember back in the day when there wasn't even the quest tracker the quest would say go to chetwood and due south of such and such a lake you will find the item that it is so you had to go all the way to Chetwood and not aim for this X on the map you literally had to figure out where it was in Chetwood yourself and patrol and there used to be websites that gave you things like coordinates and stuff but obviously that's all old data now and I don't know what it is maybe it's the rise of YouTube and stuff people would rather do a video showing you how to do stuff rather than write content and put a map and put an X on it so I'm hoping that you get this resurgence not only in practical resources but maybe also a return of more Lotro centric podcasts and blogs and stuff like that because you did your retrospective recently about Mordor or Bust and I'm just thinking wouldn't it be cool if someone else was working now on an equivalent of that well I hope so you know one one of the things that I think I brought up in one of my podcasts or somewhere else I'm getting into the housing as I mentioned earlier and I'm trying to decorate and I vividly remember that somebody I think it might have been somebody we knew or had interviewed once or something, 
had put together a wonderful blog where they screenshotted everything that you could use for your housing. You know what I mean? Like all of the little bits you could buy and told you where to get them. Because that's a that's a weakness of the game, isn't it? You know, you, you can go look at the vendor and it says you have here's a tree, but you never see what the tree actually looks like unless you buy it and use it, right? <laughs> so you could go to yeah. this website and everything was cataloged, and they they even had outfits on on another website where to to play dress up and all that. And I have searched for that on several days, and I just can't remember who did it and, or the name, and it's not coming up in Google no matter what I've been trying, and so it seems that maybe that's gone, which happens over time, but there seems to be, if it is gone, there, there's nothing to replace it, and that's the type of thing I'm personally hoping gets replaced. Um, I, I like the podcast, and I like the blog, you know, the the diary blogs or whatever, hey, here's what I did in the game, and those are all fun, but what I miss personally is the informational blogs, like Casual Stroll, did those wonderful, you know, every time there was an event, they had the event guides, right? And and it was just, you know, it was a resource that everybody seemed to use. And, you know, they're not playing that game. I haven't been at their site in a long time, but maybe they keep those updated, maybe not. I think they're still applicable. And then I don't know about you, I search for stuff, and a lot of times forum com- forums comes up, the official forums. Apparently they've migrated that once or twice because half the links don't work anymore. You know, you can see the the blurb in Google. Oh, that answered my question. And you click on it and it says, "Hey, we can't find this content." You know what I mean? So, so it's, it's yeah. a little frustrating. You, you can see that the game was not being played for a long time. People had really migrated away from it, and now all of a sudden, people are migrating back in. As happens, and then I think a lot of new players, in particular, will be frustrated because it's the information isn't there the way it was when we had started playing. I can remember the last major guide that really impressed me. It was done on the official Lotro forums, and it was Fred Alass's guide to Hitbug, how to effectively set up a routine so over a structured period of time you could completely rebuild Hitbold and then get the armor set at the end. And it's it's things like that that I miss. Um... I can't can't say what the the housing item website was, but I think the armor one was something like Darzil's Guide or something like that, and that was really really good. But then it sort of stopped round about 2012, and I think the whole site has gone offline now. It's one of those sites where it's not even stagnant; it's gone offline. So even if it was put back it would still have massive gaps in its knowledge. So I, I really do hope that fans will take the initiative and put up these sort of things because that's what the community needs. And I would advise them to sort of not necessarily do these guides just exclusively on the forums because some people still have a very jaundiced view of the Lotro forums because of what happened in the past. Yeah. <laughs> still there's a cloud about that to this day isn't there a little bit yeah yeah and mistakes were made on both sides that there was sometimes there was a little bit of heavy-handed moderation and sometimes there was some inappropriate behavior from some of the forum members but it's going to take time for people to to come back to these areas now that they are sort of under new management as well so it would be nice just to see some blogs where it was just i don't know fred blogs is armor guide or 
here's the best way classic example the flora barter system that i was talking about here are the best areas to go to because the best plants that yield the best extracts grow here that sort of thing or yeah any sort of list that can impart information in a structured way will be greatly received and it's good for the community because lotro particularly after listening to your your podcast the um it had a damn good community back in 2010. Yeah, it really did, and and we're 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 in touch with a lot of those people still to this day over Twitter and whatnot. Um, I will say we talked about the legendary or uh, the, the imbued legendaries a little bit on the forums. Yeah. There is actually a very good guide on the imbued items. It's extremely in depth, actually, with tons of screenshots, which you can find just by searching. And I think there's also still a guide for the regular legendaries because you have have to deal with those all the way up to level 100 when you can imbue. And so uh, Valkrist put this together is their forum name. And this is what I used to figure out the imbued system because I had it sort of figured out. But as you mentioned, you and I were both a little confused about it. And this guide on the official forums in particular just had all more details than I wanted actually quite frankly it goes very in depth but it's what got me through it and I have referred back to it probably a dozen times or more um, just to make sure I understand how things work because uh, you know once you imbue something it's done right you can't kind of can't go back yes and you are taking it with you it seems like it should be for the rest of the game I'm not sure they can do that but you know, we're, we're all spending a lot of effort on these imbued weapons, so it damn well better last an awful long time. Well, for the new player coming to Lotro, I would certainly say there's a great deal to be enjoyed. Starting from scratch, you will out-level a region well before you see everything in that region, so you might want to think about taking things slow and exploring the different zones in full before you move on. There are also situations in Lotro where they've tried to be very contemporary. For example, I just love the fact that in Lotro you kill stuff and the loot goes immediately in your bag. It's one of the best loot systems in an MMO I've seen. You don't have to intervene in any way, shape or form. And that's a great example of something that's very modern and contemporary. And yet you're still competing over raw nodes like a game you played a decade ago. Exactly. But that's the, the, the pleasures of playing a game that has endured for, well, it's a 10-year anniversary coming up. So I suppose you have to sort of take the rough with the smooth. By and large, things are moving forward. So, um, yeah, it's good to be back. It's good to be playing Lotro. And um, hopefully in the months to come, we'll have plenty more to talk about on this podcast. now about YouTube, PewDiePie, and the whole taming 
and commercialization, shall we say, of online content via video and streaming. For people who've been hiding under a rock, PewDiePie, a.k.a. Felix Schellberg, um, is he still, Brian, the most popular Western YouTuber? I believe by far the most popular individual yeah. YouTuber. He's a guy from Sweden who, over recent years, has been doing, shall we say, lightweight, frothy, touchy-feely videos about gaming and wider aspects, possibly, of popular culture. And he has pitched very much, shall we say, at the teen audience? Or is it even younger than that, would you say? Uh, a youthful audience, let's say. A youthful audience, yes. There you go, that's a good compromise. Anyway, he's done very, very well out of it. Um, he was in the right place at the right time. He's an uncontroversial guy up until now. <laughs> in fact, in many ways, he's the sort of poster boy for doing this sort of thing right. He, he produced content that the audience lapped up. He, his likes just grew. His audience grew. He started doing very well out of it financially. He started going from a cottage industry into a finely tuned machine. That's a familiar phrase. <laughs> And inevitability, he then got himself on the A-list of, of YouTube. He then got affiliated to various networks, Maker Studio, which then got assimilated by Disney. And in a relatively short period of time, you couldn't be in a better position from starting out from just knocking out a few videos on YouTube. And you think to yourself, well, hurrah, it's sort of like an online version of the American dream except it's not America, it's Sweden. But we'll let that pass. And then, according to the Wall Street Journal, who broke this story, um, let's just say there have been a few off-colour jokes in some of um, PewDiePie's um, videos as of late. And this has been duly noted by his business associates. And this culminated recently where he did a video where he used um, the website Fiverr where you can pay modest sums of money and get all sorts of content created for you. You can get logos and videos done, voiceovers, artwork done. Anyway, he saw fit to employ two guys from Fiverr who will effectively stand in front of a video camera write a message on a piece of cardboard, hold it up, and then effectively that's what they do. And in his infinite wisdom, he decided to test this facility. I think he was striving to make some point of, isn't it bizarre the things that you can do on the internet these days? Which in itself is a fairly straightforward point, and I would agree with him in that. However, the slogan he saw fit to have placed on this placard that these two guys held up was death to all Jews. And anyone who's got an iota of common sense at this point suddenly goes, oh dear. Because it got flagged, it then got looked at by his business associates and um, those in senior positions of the networks that he's affiliated to. And to cut a long story short, they took a dim view of this sort of humour, if it is humour, and he has already now been dropped from uh, 
the maker and YouTube ad platform because of this. Now, Felix himself has said, I am not an anti-Semitic or racist guy. That was not the point of this particular joke and other jokes that I've made. I was trying to, as he said, highlight the bizarre nature of the online services that you can buy these days. He's also said in subsequent follow-ups that um, he's not involved in overt political commentary on his site. Brian, it's a bit of a dog's dinner, this, because all the guy had to do was just continue what he was doing, and he was made for life. I'm not saying that he has completely shot himself in the foot. He still has a great deal of following. But certainly he has tarnished his own brand, would you say? Well, maybe with the greater world. I'm not so sure all of his, you know, 53 million subscribers on YouTube or they haven't unsubscribed in mass, let's say that, right? Um, <clears throat> many thoughts about this. So, so he grew as a channel, as you had briefly mentioned, by doing reaction videos to gaming. That was yes. his claim to fame and the Brofist stuff, right? That was him. And recently, if you look at his content, it's more commentary and internet drama, you know? And though he's, he's kind of changed pretty, you know, vividly, especially, you know, if you haven't lived through the change, you, you can look at look at three years ago versus three months ago, and it's different. The, the reason he got into trouble for this, other than the obvious reason of anti-Semitic, content right you know which how stupid can you be is it wasn't just the one video it was at least nine videos over a period of time that these things have have appeared in and so he he there there's in in internet culture in and with young people like millennials and stuff there's this lol jk right attitude of i can say whatever i want but it was a joke, so it's okay. And that's essentially his defense. I said these things, but my audience knows enough not to take them seriously because they weren't meant that way, so everything's good, people. But he's an adult, too, right? <laughs> we're adults. Yes. We're, we're a little older than him, but we're all adults. And adults should be able to step back a little bit and, and realize that you can't, make racist or anti-religious comments especially in today's world right with all this crap we have going on that it's just not going to hold up and you can't do these things and then when they turn sour go oh i'm sorry it was a joke that automatically gives me a pass and, and i in my opinion that's what he's trying to do that's his big defense and it just doesn't work that way but all the young people feel like it should or something so that's the that's the stress right um all he had to do this, this is what pains me because i've watched pewdiepie videos and i've been aware of him for years and and he's he can be a funny guy all he had to do was make fun of himself not make fun of you know a, a, a religious group, right? That, that's been oppressed for how long? Yes. How many hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years or whatever? And, and, and it's a thing, right? The, that, that's a horrible thing. 
So instead of doing that, which I really, maybe he was going for the absurd, he could just, PewDiePie, he's the biggest YouTuber. Everybody knows him that knows anything about YouTube. And, you know, turn it inwards, and then nobody, you know, that's the ultimate defense, isn't it? And it doesn't hurt anybody because he is making fun of himself, and that does show the absurdity. But no, he didn't choose to do that. So as a result, and I don't know if we're going to get into this, and I won't get into this too far. So, Roger, you're aware of who the alt-right is turning out to be, right? Yes, and, it's, and also I'd just like to say from a personal point of view, I don't like to use that label because that's trying to soften what they are. But I'm going to use the label just because the, the, because the label's out there, okay? So, so, so the alt-right is, is a broad term for supremacists. And they have now embraced PewDiePie <laughs> as somebody who is a like-minded individual. And I don't really know, I don't think anybody knows what he really feels. Maybe he, maybe he is, maybe those things he said, he said because he believes them. I, I'd like to think he didn't. He, he was trying to make an absurd thing. But I'm pretty sure that Google, who owns YouTube, doesn't want their, their star to be embraced by this supremacist groups, right? <laughs> that, that doesn't really look good for Google, does it? No. So, so this, is the, this is the can of worms, and it's, it's just it's sad because, as you said, the, the guy did it to himself. He, he voluntarily produced this content and threw it out there and got caught... And now it's backpedaling, and it's it's been all this drama for what a week, week and a half, something like that. As we're talking, and it's just it's it's unfortunate, but it goes to show you, you know, when you have a big platform and you're given a big megaphone, that the consequences are big too. I think that is a very important point. I, the the consequences of the fame that he and others like him have, because let's face it. He started doing this quite a few years ago. He's 27 now, um, Felix Schellberg. I like to think that what we're seeing over the years is him growing up, and he's possibly constrained now by some of the material that he has to do. His fans are expecting him to do, as you say, reaction videos and light and frothy sort of bro gaming culture. And now maybe he wants to be more particular about what he does fine i agree with that you, you, although it comes with the risk of alienating your own audience he says here and this is from um, a recent follow-up video i do strongly believe that you can joke about anything but i also believe that there's a right way and then not the best way to joke about things and i love to push boundaries but i would consider myself a rookie comedian and i think therein lies the problem he had an idea of what he wanted to do, and he went about it the wrong way. If he wanted to highlight the absurdity of Fiverr, you pay some guys, potentially, to hold up a sign saying, in brackets, insert inflammatory slogan here, or use your idea, Brian, point it at yourself. Say something hideously outrageous, but about yourself, and then say, see? See what you can potentially do? Because that was the point that he was striving to make, but he just went about it the wrong way. It's also been talked about, I believe it turned up on Kotaku. If you're going to do satire, you need satire credentials. 
You need to have an established reputation that you are a, per a person or a body that regularly satirizes things. So again, it comes back to context. People know, oh, someone is now going to be saying something that they deliberately mean the opposite of. I understand that because they have a track record of doing it. They are a satirist. It's If you see someone like um, John Oliver doing his show on HBO, you know what John Oliver's thing is. You understand what he is trying to do, what his pedigree is. Therefore, if he says something controversial or ironic, you get that it's not meant directly to support the thing that he's saying. For someone like Felix Yelberg to sort of try and jump into this game without any prior experience, it was just going to end in disaster. And you have to use your common sense that's not to say that certain subjects are off limit i actually do believe that you can joke about anything but you have to be incredibly skilled and incredibly smart if you want to do it the right way or else you're just going to end up trekking your muddy footprints through a really really difficult situation and that's what i actually think that he's done and now he's making matters worse for himself because he's possibly fighting and kicking against it a little bit too much and then as you said you've now got groups trying to appropriate this story that then tar him by association it's going to be very interesting to see what the fallout is but i definitely think now that you're probably going to see a tightening of the rules on a lot of these platforms because they're owned by google and amazon and they just don't want any of this shit because it messes with their business. It's got nothing to do with moral rectitude. It comes down to the fact it messes with their business. So I wouldn't be surprised if you see yet another set of terms and conditions and rules governing what you can and cannot do on these platforms. What do you think? Yeah, you, well, you mentioned Amazon, which is, you know, they own Twitch. And I, I watch a lot of Twitch and they have been clamping down recently. And it, again, it's, it's the corporate thing, right? Um, you know, there's a fine line between free speech and then allowing people to do the wrong thing. And where do you draw that line, right? Um, so, so I wonder, you know, you said he's 27, right? Um, yeah. You know, I'm assuming his audience is broadly younger than him. Do you think he's growing out of his audience? Is that part of the problem? Like maybe he's getting out of touch? I think that that could be a problem. Or, as I said earlier, he's now being constrained by what it is that he has to do. He's probably got people saying to him, Felix, don't talk about that. Go and do what you did last season. That's what the punters like. And it's just that point of, if you're a children's entertainer, there might come a point where you just say, I don't want to be a children's entertainer. I, w I want to do Hamlet. <laughs> Yeah, and I, I think he tweeted out, too, that um, Wall Street Journal reporters had knocked on his door to give him a chance to respond or something, and it, he was, I don't know, incredulous or something. Like, you know, can you believe that happened? And I'm, I'm kind of like, well, but you're a public figure now, right? Like, yeah, duh, <laughs> like reporters report. And, you know, I, I realize that, that there's certain political figures trying to make, you know, the press the enemy. But regardless of how you feel about that, that's their job. And if you make a big mistake, you're going to get a big response to it and have big articles written. And, you know, I just, I, I don't know. It's, it's, I'm kind of scratching my head. I, I, you know, 
he always seemed to me to be untouchable, sort of. Um, in spite of all of his silliness, it, it was always I always felt it was kind of you know good-natured silliness, and, and it was kind of fun to watch some of his stuff. But boy, I'm I don't really I don't really care to watch him anymore. Do you? I struggle with a lot of the YouTube and Twitch culture anyway, and I think it is just purely a generational thing. I was brought up in a world of rules. There are rules with regard to language. There's rules with regard to written work. I like polished, slick, well-crafted internet content, be that blog posts, be that videos, be that live streams. And I struggle with the fact that... you. Today I've watched a couple of live streams and there were nice enough people, but they couldn't answer any questions. They didn't quite know what they were doing. It it just seems so lackadaisical. So I just struggle with the whole of this culture anyway, because it's not how I would approach it. And that is the thing. I think a lot of the people that actually own this stuff are people possibly of my generation. And it's, and I do think now that the, the, the screws are going to get tightened and this wild west frontier mentality of you can do anything is now going to get squeezed and squeezed and squeezed and regulated until it's the same as network television or any other platform you know you will be able to do stuff but you have to clearly declare in advance what it is that you're doing and you you have to give people warnings and if you do something staggeringly crass there will be consequences for it and all he had to do was just shut up keep doing it and taking the money <laughs> there's a little bit of me that just just feels that way it's just like dude you've pissed on your chips why well and let's be clear he was kicked out of the premium ad program on mm-hmm. uh youtube which is an invite only thing for the top people he still can make money on the platform mm-hmm. the way you and i can if we monetized our videos there yeah sure and chose to he's, he's kind of with the plebs now right so, you know, he still will make millions of dollars a year. You know, he is not going to be homeless at any time soon. And if he's been smart with his money, which I hope he has, he really doesn't have to do anything for the rest of his life, to be quite frank. He, he has made that much. But you're, you're right. It's, you know, trying to be edgy maybe or whatever his reasons were, it's really coming back to bite him in the butt because they canceled his TV show or whatever, whatever it was on, you know, the, that premium YouTube show and being dropped by Disney has that's got to hurt financially for sure. So yeah, it, a month ago he was a hero and now he's kind of a zero in a way. It's just strange. I'm just wondering, as a parting thought, whether there's now going to be people who feel being controversial and saying something outrageous is a worthwhile price to pay to get the fame. There might be some people who are not as famous and don't have as big an audience as him, but still have a sizable one behind them and just feel, I've got nothing else to lose. Let's just say something and see what happens. There are a lot of very big YouTube channels out there that are kind of based upon drama and where they do those types of things. And I'm pretty sure they're all doing very, very well. But at the end of the day, all you're doing is creating drama, right? I mean, it's not... You know, it's it's a there's a fine line. I'm I'm not sure the lifetime of those channels, you know, is long, super long. Like PewDiePie could have had a very and it probably still will be around for a long, long time. Don't get me wrong, but I think when you base it around, you know, 
drama for the sake of drama, how long can that really last? How, how long do people remain interested in your drama until they get tired of it and see it for what it really is, right? Indeed. Just you wait and see. Don't be impatient, just wait and see. Asmith was asked what was his policy. He said wait and see. He said wait and see. Here's an interesting anecdote. A couple of weeks ago, Brian was recording a segment for Scrooge Uncut, and this very subject came up, but because of time and other stories and other things, it ended up not being used. And that subject has now returned on this recording, and it is Sherlock Season 4. Brian, did you enjoy Sherlock Season 4? No. Would you care to tell us the reasons why? Because from what I've understood, you've enjoyed it so far? Uh, I did not like Series 3 either. Ah, I see. So the problem started for you with Season 3, and it was then further compounded with this latest season. Yeah, long story short, uh, my problem with Sherlock starting in in Series 3 is what I call the Mary problem. Mm Mm-hmm. I think in retrospect, and we talked about this on a podcast uh, a while back and, that I didn't like Series 3, and what I think I didn't like about it is, to me, Sherlock was about the two guys and kind of their relationship, whatever that is, you know, such as it was, right? Yes. And the interplay between them, and if you look at Series 1, and if you look at Series 1 and 2, that's what it was about. And maybe that was boring to people, but that's what I liked about it, and I suspect that's what a lot of people liked about it. It was their friendship. It was their, you know, the, you know you've got this two pretty different people <laughs> mixing together and making a good team, and it was kind of fascinating and very well acted, obviously, right? So, f- super high-quality show. And then Series 3, it started drifting away from that, and I think they started experimenting. And and I realized that that Mary is a thing in the source material, okay? So it's not a complaint about that, but it it took the focus away from what made the show special for me. And then when Series 4 hit this year, the very first episode... Uh, they took care of the Mary problem, didn't they? <laughs> is, is all yes. I will say. And I, I thought that they were getting back to form, the form that I liked. And then the rest of it hit, and it, it got worse. It was just completely out of control. It was just completely farcical to me. And and then it appears this is this might be it because you have to admit they they kind of the ending of series four of Sherlock they packaged pretty much as the ending of the entire thing. It, it ended very neatly, didn't it? Yes, it did indeed. So I, I, I think it's a hot mess. Uh, that's probably unpopular. And, and I realize that. I, I, you know, I think the fan base still is still very much in love with it. But I, I, I suspect I'm not the only person who feels that it just... What, whatever they, they did, whatever experiments they were doing, just simply for me, just flat out didn't work. And I... I kind of regret. I, I wish I the Reichenbach Fall, which was the last episode of series two, is. I wish that was the last one I'd ever seen. Fair enough. It's very interesting this because 
I can remember watching the first season of Sherlock and thinking, that's a very interesting reimagining of the original concept. And the stories were densely plotted and slightly OTT, but within the realms of television possibility, which is subtly different from our own reality. And then it became clear in season two that they wanted more than just a a difficult case to solve of the week or a difficult nemesis of the week to overcome. It was broadening its scope and becoming more and more fanciful, more and more, shall we say, overwrought, hyperbolic. But because of the nature of the characters and because of the nature of the show, I was prepared to go along with that. When season three came along and Mary was introduced, I actually didn't have that much of a problem with it. I couldn't see how a humdrum, everyday, traditional sort of partner who had a normal job, didn't have an exceptional personality, just wouldn't have been able to fit into the triumvirate, the trinity. It just wouldn't have happened. Uh, Sherlock would have hated her if she was a quote-unquote normal person, and she just would not have tolerated having such a man impinge upon her relationship. So... I just knew from the get-go that there was going to have to be a requirement to make Mary an exceptional savant-like character in her own right. And I just decided to embrace it and go where the writers wanted to take it. It was interesting because, as you say, the, the first episode of season four dealt with the Mary conundrum, and then you had this very bleak, tangential sidestep in the second episode um, which in some respects was a bit of a throwback to the sort of like the episodes you got in season one and two and then the the final episode was this huge gilded operatic gothic overreaching mess graphic novelesque type production And I just thought to myself at one point, I can either choose to get annoyed by this or I can just stick with the writers, Stephen Moffat and Mark Gatiss, and just go where the story tells me. I mean, as soon as they introduced the concept of a maximum security prison for the most unique of criminals, i.e. this place called Sherinford, this institution called Sherinford, I just thought to myself, hmm, Arkham Asylum. The Phantom Zone, Azkaban, yes, those places usually work out. So it was just, it was just telegraphing where it was going. And I just chose Brian to, to go along with the conceit, the essential conceit that the writers had had indulged themselves with. But I can understand that some people would just balk at that and just say either at this point or, or as you did a season beforehand, just said no, 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 no that's stepping over a line yeah i think that at the beginning it you know they had constructed this this world right and and the stories were contained within that world very neatly and then as it went on it started they started getting out of their world i think and you know i i just i i just i couldn't believe it anymore i couldn't believe in it at some point and you know, like I said, I, I think I'm not the only one, but I, I do suspect that this is very unpopular because there's such a rabid fan base that's going to buy in no matter what. 
you know that they just like the show and they like the actors and and, and all of that and, and and series two was the heyday wasn't it remember remember when the Reichenbach fall episode hit how the internet was buzzing oh my god we can't wait for for series three because how did this happen how did they do this remember that <laughs> how, yes how did he fall off of this thing and this whole thing happened and and I remember when Series 3 started and when their explanation came out after however much time it was, I was just like, oh, that was it? That's kind of depressing. You know, like I was super disappointed, I guess. I, I think this is the perennial conundrum. Writers can either hit a sweet spot and say, let's tread water and stay in a sweet spot for as long as we can which meant that they could have then theoretically done another one or two seasons where it's just villain of the week complicated plot of the week that would have satisfied you Brian for a while but then would there have become a point where you just said okay you're just now doing the same thing every week how many overtly complicated crimes are there to solve in the world so I think writers have got this this conundrum of whether to do that follow that approach that I've just described or whether to push the characters forward but in by, in by pushing the characters forward they're going to take them into territory where the fans don't necessarily like it yeah I, I mean we'll never know right I mean you know I, I think I suspect I would have been okay only because each series was three episodes right so what have we got in total like 13 because there was a special wasn't there that's a season of a Netflix. That's one season of a Netflix show or an Amazon Prime show, isn't it? 13 episodes. Sometimes even 10, right? So I do suspect that although Sherlock is hour and a half movie-type episodes, I think I would have been okay with villain of the week, story of the week, or whatever, because that's the part I really liked. I was okay with that. And And the other thing that was in their favor is it was a long time between the series. This wasn't, you know tune in, in in six months for the next one it was sometimes 18 months or 12 months wasn't it yes you know it's, it's taken them an awful long time to get to get these four series out if, if you go look at the date so yeah season one was 2010 season two was 2012 and i believe that that was directly a result of the hobbit being filmed and both their lead actors being involved in that season three was then 2014 you had the the Abominable Bride special in 2016 and then hard on the heels of the Abominable Bride they managed to squeeze in season 4 so yeah, it, it, it's directly affected Benedict Cumberbatch and Martin Freeman's yeah. other acting commitments and certainly when you consider that both of them now are tied to other shows or other movie franchises, I mean I'd watched Doctor Strange the other day and I just thought well you've committed now to the MCU Benedict I bet you've got a very interesting contract and I'm hardly surprised that they're not going to rush into doing a, a, a fifth season plus the fact I get the impression that this is very hard for the writers and there reaches a point where they say I've got other ideas that I want to do I mean, it's already been announced that Mark Gatiss has got another drama coming out with Kit Harrington about the Guy Fawkes plot to blow up Parliament. And you think, well, wow. So, and, you know, if they're doing the press releases now, that's been in negotiation for a while. Do you know what I mean? Uh, I just think that maybe, although I enjoyed season four, maybe it 
it showed that the fact that the writers were sinking under the weight of their own complexity as it were so maybe it's a good thing that it's on a hiatus to say the least well i mean things run their course don't they and and it's just possible that maybe this has run its course and maybe in my opinion it ran its course a while back Mm -hmm. but i I understand why they wanted to come back and do it And, and in spite of me not liking it i mean i'm glad they did i'm glad that there was sherlock to watch regardless of what I personally felt about it, because I do like the characters and the actors, all of the actors, actually, even the, the, the supporting cast, everybody in that was superb, in my opinion. So I, I'm not complaining that there was Sherlock. It's just I wish it was better Sherlock for me. <laughs> so, but yeah, I mean, you know, why wouldn't they want to come back? Because they had a critically acclaimed show. Probably award-winning, I'm guess. Uh, you know, I don't know if that's true or not, but I'm guessing it could be. And um, and it seems like that they all enjoyed doing it, didn't they? If, if you read interviews and, or listen yes. to interviews and, and that type of thing, it seems like they are all looking for excuses to come back to it if their schedules permits. And, and that's neat. You, you like to see a cast and a crew that, that kind of meshes together like it, it appears they have on Sherlock because I think it helps the quality of the show. It's a question of let's see how this now blows over because, as you said, there was a split in the fan base and there certainly was a drop in the viewing figures on the last episode as if I think people were a little bit frustrated. So I'm sure time will tell. I don't mind them doing another season. I'm quite happy to wait. I can always revisit what's been done already and see if I can find any further virtue in it. And at the end of the day, my ultimate fallback is I've still got Endeavour. Well, I think that's a good place to wrap up this episode of the Burton and Scrooge podcast. Before we go, it's perfectly fine as far as I'm concerned to do a bit of cross-promotion. So I'd like to reference Brian's show that he's been doing while this podcast has been on a hiatus. And I do hope that he continues to do it in between episodes of the show because it is um, a very enjoyable project. Namely, the Scrooge Uncut podcast. Brian, tell us a little bit about this vehicle. Well, a lot of uh, market research went into the name and, and the logo, if you've ever seen it. Uh, that, that, took, that took many seconds to design, actually. So, you know, I've wanted to do my own podcast for a long time and never really took the opportunity, and now I have. And so Scrooge Uncut is basically my gaming and... Uh, media life, I guess, for lack of a better way to put it. Um, No guests, just me, and uh, so far the response has been fairly good. I've been pleased. Uh, A lot of people are listening to it, and it's been a lot of fun doing, and I just came out with a mortar or bust retrospective episode, which is very long and very self-indulgent, 
where I talk about uh, from seven years ago where you and I met, Roger, the Mortar of Us podcast in the website. Indeed. And it was a uh, trip down memory lane for me. It was kind of fun. I hadn't thought about a lot of that in a long time. And to think about, uh, you know, I met you and Fure and Baldy and, you know, all of these people. And there's still fans around like Chris Ruin and, and, and people like him, uh, you know, that, that seven years is a long time, uh, and, and it only lasted what twenty-one episodes or something. The podcast, but it it kind of shaped, I think, our podcasting futures in a way, didn't it? Because we headed into contains modern peril, which became Burton and Scrooge. So, yeah, just, yes, uh, indeed, fun. I would say that if there are listeners out there who remember the halcyon days of the Lotro community round about 2009-2010 where there was a heck of a lot of fan blogs and a heck of a lot of podcasts good podcasts, podcasts that all came at the subject of Lotro from different angles um, you will probably remember Mordor or Bust and have fond memories hopefully and it's just very interesting because uh, you were in a very unique position Brian where you did several things and made a bit of a splash within the community I mean your prediction over free to play being one of them and <laughs> that whole debacle of let's just do screenshots of everything that's in the um, Lotro store which is currently only in beta access that certainly made an impression and I, I'd, I'd wholeheartedly recommend it to people and also people who maybe weren't around at the time but just want to know about the way the fan community and 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 fan podcasts really do sometimes find some traction and have a great deal with sort of participating in that wider pool of fun that you all get from just playing a particular MMO. So yeah, definitely go check out the Scrooge Uncut podcast. Um, I hope you continue doing it, Brian, and I hope you continue with the very broad range of subjects that you're tackling. I appreciate that, and it's easy to find if anybody wants to uh, look for it, because if you are subscribed to the Burton and Scrooge podcast, the Scrooge Uncut podcast appears in the same feed, just like magic, doesn't it? It certainly does. It's the same over at the TGen network as well. Exactly. You literally don't have to do anything. You're already getting it, whether you want it or not. Okay. Well... That's a good point to end. I don't have to do any complicated summaries or outros, Brian, because it's all recorded. Here comes Perilsworth to tell everyone about the end of the show. Thanks for listening to the Burton and Scrooge podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. If you didn't, then sod off. We'll be back soon with another episode. In the meantime, feel free to leave comments or a rating on iTunes. You can email the show via Burton and Scrooge at ContainsModRapparel.com. Don't forget to follow both Brian and Roger on Twitter, at Siderius and at ModRapparel. Feel free to support this podcast at Patreon.com forward slash ModRapparel. Give us some money, you bastards. The Burton and Scrooge podcast is brought to you by ContainsModRapparel.com and is part of the Gaming and Entertainment Network.